Welcome to the Librarian Influencers Podcast. Each week, our host, Dr. Laura Shinneman, dives deep into school library topics to help you build your skills and take charge of your own professional development. Her mission is to create an environment where librarians flourish and become lifelong learners. Now, on to today's podcast. I'd like to welcome Dr. Heather Moorfield Lang to the Librarian Influencers Podcast. Uh, so Heather, would you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your background in the school library world? Sure. Um, I started in librarianship in 1998. So okay. if we want to roll it on back, I got my master's at the University of North Carolina okay. at Greensboro, which is actually where I currently work and teach. Uh, so it comes around full circle. Uh, got my degree in 2000 at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro uh, with a master's in library science um, at the time in school librarianship. I actually did not start uh, my job as a school librarian um, until 2001. Okay. Um, the school I was at, uh, I was a theater teacher. I started out teaching theater and I was a theater teacher for five years and I was a school librarian for six years. Okay. Uh, so I had the wonderful opportunity to work in the same school that I was the theater teacher for and then moved into the school librarian position. So I was actually able to train and work with the school librarian for a couple of years actually right. uh, before I took over the position when she retired. Very nice. And so that's my background uh, with school librarianship in the school library. Okay. Um, after that, in 08, um, I actually um, graduated with my uh, EDD in education, uh, specifically curriculum instruction. Okay. I took on a um, academic library position at Virginia Tech. Uh, then in 2014, I'm trying to keep my date straight. In 2014, <laughs> I uh, went to the University of South Carolina um, in Columbia, South Carolina, and I started teaching for their uh, school of library science, library and information science in the area of school librarianship. Okay. Um, I do a lot with technology in school libraries, uh, maker spaces in school libraries and libraries. And then uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago, I was able to come back home to Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, to UNC Greensboro, to their Department of Library and Information Science. And I'm now teaching school library classes for UNC Greensboro, uh, my alma mater, where um, I am just overjoyed and ecstatic to be back here uh, at home uh, near my family and teaching with an amazing team uh, in our school library department. That's awesome. So in particular, yeah, you had mentioned technology earlier. Is, is that the kind of courses that you're teaching? I teach predominantly three courses. I teach one that's it's called LIS 635. 635 is um, technology, Libraries and Technology, sorry, we just updated the name. Okay. That is a big overview of all different types of technology and technology trends in libraries. Okay. When I taught that course at the University of South Carolina, it was very much geared towards school librarians. At the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, um, it's for all librarians. So I have everyone in that class. Um, I have school, academic, public, special, I have publishers information scientists, people going into instructional design. So it's a little more open, mm -hmm. uh, but the idea is still the same. So we look at emerging trends. We look at 
great tools, websites, apps. Um, we look at makerspaces. We look at cybersecurity. Um, I do a big overview of all different types of technology and libraries. Um, and I also kind of hope that opens the door for my students to other areas. So if they're really interested in makerspaces, we have a makerspaces course. If they're really interested in programming, we have more uh, courses for building websites and programming. If they're interested in cybersecurity, we hope to soon have a course about that. And then we also have classes um, in that area in computer science and our uh, school of business and things like that. So I hope that that opens the door for other areas if they're really interested in pursuing more. Mm -hmm. I also teach a class in storytelling and digital storytelling. And then I also teach a class that's called just the school library. And that's all about running a school library program. Um, everything from collection development to facilities to staffing. My students do a community analysis, a collection analysis. They write grants. It's, it's all, it's the class they take right before they do or with along their internship. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's that class all about running a school library program. Yeah, that's good timing with that one. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let me, let me ask you a question. You might be the first person with a doctorate that I've interviewed. Um, what a lot of times librarians will say, well, I'm thinking about going and getting my, my next degree. What was it in particular that let you know it's time? This is what I'm going to do. I knew that I always wanted to teach in a university setting. Okay. For a lot, I mean, way early back. I loved being in a university setting. I liked being on a university campus. I, I thoroughly enjoyed K through 12. There's no part of K through 12 that I didn't enjoy. Mm -hmm. I would happily go back to K through 12. Um, but, and there's no, there's no part of any of my career that I ever look back and go, oh no, I never do that. Um, but again, I, I, I just always knew that I wanted to work in academia in some way. So I knew that if I wanted to teach um, either educators or pre-service teachers or pre-service librarians, whichever way the road took me, I knew that I had to have a doctorate for that. Now, that's not absolutely true. Um, we have clinical professors that have master's plus years in service. Um, you know, there are other avenues, but the most direct path tends to be um, having the doctorate. I have a doctorate in education. Some folks have a PhD. Mm -hmm. It just depends. Um, I went with the doctorate in education because one, uh, for the program I went with, I was able to continue working Yes. Uh, because once you start getting that paycheck, you like that paycheck. <laughs> um, and I was already vested in the system in North Carolina and, you know, I wanted to keep my years towards retirement. So I, I'm very pragmatic about my money, <laughs> you know, I mean, in my years and everything else, but everybody has a completely different reason and right. way of how they go about it. Right. For those who are out there thinking about possibly doing this, um, one, feel free, and I've already had friends of mine in the field who have gotten in touch with me, I'm always happy to talk about it. And just know that just like the field of school librarianship, the field of school library professors, none of us are getting any younger. And we <laughs> need professors in school librarianship I mean, we have to, um, while adjuncting is awesome, and I have many friends in the field who teach school library courses, I recommend them, I give them references, I, I recommend them for my own program, but we have to have professors mm -hmm. in schools of library science. You can't run a full school library program in any 
um, university or a, a department of school uh, or a department of library science, you have to have at least a professor or two. Uh, my, my program, we have three. Yeah. Um, and you have to have them. And we, you know, I mean, folks are going to retire quite yeah. a few folks. And so if you're interested in doing it, there's going to be a job market. Yeah. There really will. Yeah, I agree. I say this is the time. Do it now. It is. I've had I've had two or three friends just this past semester have gotten in touch with me. And many of them are teaching a, a course. They're going to adjunct and see how they feel about yeah. it, how they like it. That's a great way to get into it. Uh, many schools want you to have your master's and five years of experience. That's that's the way we are at UNC Greensboro. Everybody has their own rules. Mm -hmm. um, but if it's something you're interested in, get out there and give it a try. Yeah, definitely. Most definitely. Okay. So I also think you are probably the first person from North Carolina who um, oh. I've interviewed. So as far as like requirements to be a school librarian in your state, what, what are the requirements there? For public schools. And not private or charter or anything else. But for public schools, uh, you have to have a master's in library science. Okay. Um, and then you also have a, you typically have a background in teaching. Okay. Um, some education backgrounds. A very small percentage of our students do not have a background in teaching. So they do take additional courses in education in our master's on top of their hours. Okay. Uh, and they also have to have an additional internship. Okay. Um, if they do not have the education degree or the certification in an area of education. But you okay. do have to have a master's in library science to okay. be a school librarian in the public schools of North Carolina. Right. It can be a little bit different with the private schools and the charter schools. We right. see that when we get the job mm -hmm. listings from time to time. Okay. So you mentioned background in education. Does that mean they didn't have to teach? They just have to have that like initial background? Like in Texas, you actually have to teach so many years first. There is not a particular amount of years because we actually will have students who will graduate with a degree in education with their bachelor's and come right into our program for the master's. All right. Um, I do know, I'm, I'm not going to go on like complete record. I would imagine that it certainly gives an advantage to an applicant that if you had a resume, two resumes in your hand, if you were a principal mm -hmm. and you've got someone who's got a few years experience and you've That's got someone true. who has none, it's going to give an advantage. Yeah. But we have so many school library positions open in North Carolina and South Carolina. I can say that with certainty okay. that these days they need school librarians. So <laughs> They're happy to have you. That's good. Um, we, people are getting hired even before they finish the degree. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's, yeah. that's good news. That's very good news. Yeah. We, we just were looking at our data just last week and um, it's 70 to 80%, I believe I'm correct, um, of our students who by the time they graduate, they already have the job. And I think it's higher than that. That's very so, I mean, it's our number. And that's the way it was when I was in South Carolina too. Many <laughs> will get in touch with us and say, we've got four positions. We've got six positions. Um, do you have anyone? And we'll have a few, but then what they are is just lousy with choice. Where do I want to go? <laughs> um, you know, and that's great. I mean, we, and we want that to continue. We want folks to be able to have jobs. Of course, we're a very practical program. We want folks to get employed. That's very important to us. Yeah, that's good. Well, Heather, a lot of my listening audience is 
uh, the early career librarians, you mm -hmm. know, they're just starting out um, and they could have finished their degree or not, you know, depending on where they are, but um, they're all, you know, they have so many worries about things. So I, I love for the people that I interviewed to tell some stories about when they first started out. So what do you remember about um, your first couple of years in the library? So when I was looking at your questions, I was looking at this one and I'm going, oh, okay, that's like 21 years ago. <laughs> I got to really think hard about that. <laughs> so the things that I remember from my first year or two of the library was um, really making sure that, because in, in 2000, 2001, the technology was there, but the technology was not the way it is now. <clears throat> the technology was not as pervasive. There was no one-to-one -one devices. Yeah. We were not checking out 500 Chromebooks. Um, iPads did not come out until 2010. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't, so many of the things that I present on, talk about, discuss, do all this stuff for now was not even a part of my library practice when I got started. So for me, it was incredibly important. And this really has not changed, was making sure that I knew my collection. Okay. I knew um, my students, I knew my community, and I knew who I worked for. Okay. Because the collection wasn't Heather Moorfield Lang's collection. I had, you know, if I wanted to buy a book, it was my books, but this was for my students. And I talk about this with my students now because while we're technology leaders, we're also literacy leaders. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that I had the materials that my students wanted to read, but also that I had the curriculum materials for my peer educators as well. And so, and this sounds more along the lines of something that might be a little bit further along, but I also had a couple of years to get to train in my own library before I took over the job. So I recognize that privilege that I was actually able to get a little bit of extra time. And if you ever get to do that, that's awesome. I know that doesn't happen to everybody. Yeah. Um, you know, most people for the first year, what I recommend is like just know that it's not going to be like this forever, but also know that, you know, you're, you're just doing the best you can your first year. The best way I always heard it is you're just trying not to burn anything down. Okay. <laughs> you know, you're drinking from a fire hose. Um, but I actually have a very similar question to yours in my own class because some of my students are already in their first or second year. And I'm just like, you know, what did you need to know the first day? What did you need to know the first month? What do you not worry about in your second year that you were worried about your first year? Things like that. But I know my first year, the other thing that was really important to me was knowing, was making sure that my peer educators knew that I was available, that I could help them, that I could collaborate with them, that the library was available, and that we had resources for them. Because sometimes you take over from a person who maybe the library wasn't as accessible, or maybe they didn't realize, teachers didn't realize what the librarian could do or what the library was for. So also changing that narrative, and that takes time, yeah. but you know, your first year you get five, 10 people, the next year you get more and word spreads, and then you got more work than you ever wanted. You ever <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, it's just kind of like, so it's, it's that first year was building relationships and figuring out my collection and really, you know, getting a handle on that. I also had accelerated reader, which uh, anyway, and I know plenty of people have it and that's fine and Lexiles and everything else, but I either was going to figure out how to get rid of Accelerated Reader, which I eventually did, or gain it. And I did gain it for years. I made sure that my students had the books they wanted and if I didn't have the tests, I wrote them 
And, you know, I just really listened to my community about what they wanted. I wanted my students to have their books. Mm -hmm. That's good. Very good advice for, for people. All right. So I, I use the word influencers um, for this podcast because I, I, as I'm talking to a lot of early career librarians, they don't really realize the impact that they're having, the influence that they're having, and that it's more than just a classroom, you know, if they're coming out of a teaching background, um, but they really have a much bigger influence now just from their role. Um, so what do Very you much. see, what do you see about, or how would you describe a librarian's influence on campus? I talk to my students about this a lot because when we come from a classroom, I was a theater teacher, so I already was in the role of seeing many students. I didn't just have my group or even in middle school and high school where you see like a larger swath. I switch students every semester. So, I mean, I already was teaching 200, 300 students. So moving into the library role where you are now the, the educator for everybody, Mm -hmm. you, you are now everyone's teacher, but you don't have your own particular class, not normally. Sometimes you might, you might be a journalism or you might get the yearbook or I got to hold on to a theater class, that type of thing. Uh -huh. But you're now everybody's instructor. You're now everybody's teacher. And you have a major influence on everyone because you have that ability to really reach out and Maybe initially it's an email or a newsletter a month of what's happened in the library or what's the latest reads or what type of, you know, you can put together a wakelet of resources. If you're not the most extroverted individual who wants to go from classroom to classroom, or maybe you just don't have the time because you're checking out 600 Chromebooks at the beginning yeah. of the year, or you're trying to get hotspots to everybody during the pandemic, or you're trying to even out some technology inequities. I get it. But you can offer those services to your, your faculty, your staff, your community, and let them know what it is the library can provide with the librarian. Library is just a room with a book, with books, we hope. Um, but what the librarian can provide, you've just got this serious influence, but also just dropping a little knowledge in the hallway, faculty meetings, online, you know, and we can do it. It doesn't have to be, you know, upside the head. I mean, it can be just fairly easy. I mean, I always tell folks, you know, do a little monthly newsletter or a bi-monthly report or once a semester. I mean, we talk about that in my school library class, just ways to let people know what you're doing, because if you're always letting people know what you're doing, they can't ever say, well, nothing ever happens in the library. Sure. Um, you know, the librarians we hear the most from, the ones that we see, and not everybody's into social media, but the ones that we see online, the ones who are out there really talking about, talking up what's happening in the libraries, you know, no one can ever, you know, accuse them of you know, not really, you know, having that influence not only on their own campus, but the community at large, and also letting parents and family members and yeah. uh, the larger community outside of the school know what's happening. Yeah. Okay, so Heather, with the role, with the pandemic that's been out, how have you seen that affect the role of the librarians? So, interestingly, I, I just completed, um, or I was moderating a panel with librarians about maker spaces, okay. making and the pandemic. Oh. And it was, it was very well attended first off, but it was just an amazing exchange of ideas of, you know, cause makers first off, they're incredibly creative, but it was just a wonderful exchange. Cause there was a bunch of folks from all across, you know, our field 
uh, school librarians, but others as well. It was hosted at, uh, by ABC Clio and those guys. But, you know, the exchange of ideas of how folks were reaching out to their students during the pandemic to be able to continue, you know, maker activities and literacy activities. You know, folks were having online making, um, stop, drop, pick up making activities, maker kits, home making. They were doing like shopped activities of like, what do you have at home and what can we make? And, wow. you know, maker challenges. And that's just, I mean, those are just a few ideas. And then from that presentation from that webinar, some of the attendees like grabbed all the ideas and threw them into a wakelet and then put that on social media and shared all of that out. And so that's the kind of, that's just one example, but that's the type of stuff that I'm immediately out the gate, March, immediately librarians were just like, we're online. Well, peer educators, here's what we can do to teach. Let me help you with your technology. Mm -hmm. Students to the best of our abilities, you know, there's still an inequity when it comes to technology. We know it and more systems are trying, we're working on it. But of course, never have we seen the inequities like we, I mean, this, this pandemic has massively shown our technology, our health, all the inequities, but librarians are right there. School, of course, public, we're all out there working on it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but they're like, do you need hotspots? Do you need technology? What can we do to get the education to you? You need to pick something up when you pick up your lunches. What can we do? Do you need a list of resources? Can I put together a, a Canva announcement? Can I put together, you know, a list, some infographics, some materials, some whatever you need. You need story time? Here's some story times. You need some lessons? Here's some lessons. You know, immediately going online, immediately creating the videos, immediately doing the work. You know, they were leading the way for when, when everybody was just like, you're gonna be teaching online. For a lot of folks, you're just like, what do we do? And librarians were just like, this is what you do. Yeah. And so many of the roles of librarians have moved more to a virtual. Some folks are face-to-face. -face. Um, and I just heard like, even face-to-face, -face, they're still figuring it out. They've got the books on the carts. So I've had one of my students that if a student wants to pick out a book, they have like a finger pointer yeah. and they point out what book that they want so they can pick it out from a distance. Um, they have requests online, they bag everything up, but they're still making sure that needs get met. And truly, this is a thimbleful of ideas that I have, you know, heard about over the past year. And there's so many more, mm -hmm. and a lot more folks are publishing about it. I'm positive that upcoming state and national conferences, every other session is going to be about librarianing during the right. pandemic, so on and so forth. But you know, we are nothing if not creative and we figure things out, especially in our field, because typically, not always, but typically there's only one of us mm -hmm. in a school, you know, so that's why I'm always telling folks, build that professional library network, that or learning network, right. find folks online, find folks, you know, during webinars, reach out, talk to people, because we feel alone in the library, but we're not. Mm -hmm. And you may be the only person at your elementary school. So are all these other folks, you know, so reach out and talk to other folks and find good ideas and, you know, their school may be different from yours, but that's okay. You know, you can, you can manipulate anything, to make it fit for your school. Right. Good points. Very good points. I think, and I agree with you. I really think this pandemic has shown a spotlight, you know, on, on the librarians and all the great, great things that are happening. Well, I know that um, when I follow you online, you, you tend to talk about technology and makerspaces a lot. 
but more recently that you've had a little bit of change of focus. So talk to us a little bit about what's, what's caught your attention right now. Well, I've been talking about technology, well, easily since 08, because um, in 2008, I was asked to serve on the American Association of School Librarians Best Websites for Teaching and Learning, mm-hmm. uh, which I do believe is how you and I met. Yes, it is. <laughs> and um, then uh, from that was born Best Apps, and now there's AASL Digital Resources. So, you know, from all of that has come, you know, just lists of great digital tools, resources, materials for teaching and learning, and still it goes on. And I'm not doing either one of those lists, but I still do presentations of best tools, best apps. I have my own YouTube channel um, of digital tools and how to use them. Soon I'm going to have a, hopefully it's going to work out, a website of like learning ideas and and how they connect to the YouTube site and all that type of stuff. Um, And so those types of things are coming along. But as I've been working with technology, as well as makerspaces, all my makerspace work started in 2014, um, a lot of this was born from how much I teach online, because I've been teaching fully online, and I imagine you do the same. Uh, I've been teaching online um, since 2014. And I began to notice that um, a lot was introduced to me, but I also was noticing a lot of my videos were captioned, but then I also was noticing it was very difficult to get them captioned, especially early in. YouTube wasn't doing automatic captioning early at the time. Getting your videos captioned was expensive. Very but if I had a student who was online in my classes, they deserved the same access as my students who did not have hearing impairments or visual impairments. I wanted to make sure my documents could be used by screen readers if someone did have visual impairments. And so, um, and then, and I started looking more and more at access, but also technology that is available to aid with access. Because while at a university, they began to put much more of an emphasis on captioning, live captioning, documents, you know, alternative text for images and presentations and videos and all those types of things. That's not always the case for our K through 12 schools. So what's out there that's available, free and easy to use. And so over the years, I've been looking at technology and accessibility, but also makerspaces and accessibility, um, making sure that our spaces are available and accessible for all. And that's those uh, folks who um, may have a wide variety of ADA needs and compliance. But also, especially in light of the pandemic, as I was saying earlier, it's access of I'm a student and I need access to the learning that my peers are getting, and, but I live in the county or a rural area, yeah. or I don't have the technology, or I don't have a hotspot, or I'm one of four kids in a house and there's only one laptop. I mean, there's a lot of different things about access. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have the answer for everything, um, but it's certainly something that I continue to look at I want people to be aware of, mm-hmm. um, especially because I ask the questions, I write about it, but I also don't have, I don't know, the state national level power. Um, and I don't plan to you know, run for any, I don't plan to have that kind of power, but I definitely want folks to raise the questions, mm-hmm. make the calls, mm-hmm. because I hear people at state national levels, um, you know, and I don't want to get political, but when 
I hear questions being asked or issues being avoided that do not directly address the needs and accessibility of our students, mm-hmm. that concerns me. Mm-hmm. And it just seems that folks don't know. Yeah. You know, they just, they don't. And, and then I wonder, do they care? <laughs> you know, it's like not everybody has, there's not equal access. And we know that. Mm-hmm. We know that. Not healthcare, not education, not infrastructure, not any of it. Yeah. And I don't have the answer to all of, of fixing it, but definitely some awareness would be good. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's a that's an area that I've been focusing more on and writing more about mm-hmm. um, over the past few years. It's one of my side, not yeah. this, yeah. not my main research area, but it's definitely an area that feeds into what I do. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And it, just even as you were talking, my mind was even going to E-rate because it was something I was not as familiar with prior to the job that I held previously. Um, but I, I had to support schools with that. But even even then, schools not being aware of E-rate, you know, and the kind of, I mean, millions of dollars are out there, you know, to help them um, build a little bit of equity um, mm-hmm. just in certain areas, you know, that, that it, it allows. But, you know, the schools that don't know about it are really missing out. Um, so, you know. And then it boils down to the communication. Why don't they know about it? So yeah. that means they're not being openly, um, you know, in communication about the resources that are available. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. All right. So for the listeners who are just starting out and they're starting, you know, maybe caught their attention with accessibility, what are some like initial steps they could start exploring or learning more about? If you are making videos, uh, know that YouTube will automatically caption all of your videos. Now, not everybody can use YouTube. There's filters, things along those lines. Um, so start looking around at um, just freely captionable tools, things like Kapwing, K-A-P-W-I-N-G. It will caption your videos if you want to be able to use them directly in your own school's tool, if you're using okay. Teams or if you're using Edmodo or if you're using Collaborize Classroom. I don't know. There's so many out there. But, um, you know, so know that there are other tools that can caption. Um, okay. Uh, if you can use YouTube, and I know not everybody likes YouTube, but you can also, if you're worried about privacy, you can unlist. There are things you can do that are quick and are easy, but it automatically captions for you and it's smart tech. And I know not everybody likes Google and they got their thing. Um, but, you know, when it's simple and it's easy and that's so important because that's the biggest issue with accessibility, especially when I first started with online courses, folks were like, well, that's hard. Mm-hmm. That's difficult. I don't want to have to caption a two-hour class because I, I teach at university level for grad schools. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. On the flip side, if you send your videos away and it takes two weeks to get them captioned, well, what good is that? That's not accessible either. Mm-hmm. So, you know, always looking for, you yeah. know, the best way to do things. Um, know that, you know, your Google documents can be downloaded in a Word doc and a PDF or post your documents in a Word document PDF. Uh, so that it can be easily read by screen readers for your students who may have visual impairments. Um, If you're creating a PowerPoint, all you've got to do is right click on an image and you'll see the option to do alternative text. You can also do this in Twitter. You can also do this this in Instagram. And then that way you're opening up the description of your image to describe it for your students and users um, for uh, what's happening. Because an image will just show up with, um, if someone has a visual impairment, they won't actually 
an image doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. um, so to a screen reader won't tell what it, but it will read a description if you've added in an alternative um, image description. Okay. Uh, and those are just, I mean, those are some bare, and they, they take a little bit of extra time, but those are just some like quick, simple, easy things to do. And if anybody ever wants to talk more about any of that type of stuff, they are more than happy to reach out. Those are, right. those are simple intros, but just those. Yeah helps so much. Yeah. And with the YouTube captioning, something I learned, um, you know, once you've got that set up, that they, the user in, they can even change language. Oh yeah. And I had, I was not aware of that at all. It's like, oh my gosh, that's the translations are a little squidgy. Right. Right. But, but you can. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, with my YouTube channel, a friend of mine, she's translating all of my videos into Spanish. And so we've been discussing their translations over yeah. hers, which are she, she's like, do you want it to be exact or do you want it to be more conversational? And that's been a very interesting, yeah. um, that's been a whole, it, we've been doing this all semester. And, and that's difficult too, like where I live on the Texas-Mexico border, you know, when people buy um, Spanish books, they're, they're thinking how they talk, but, but that's yeah. not, you know, at all, you know, what we're getting here. Um, so anyway, it's, it's a difference with that too. All right. Well, Heather, you, you've mentioned several different ways. Um, you've talked about ASL, you've talked about um, some different things, but what are some things that you do yourself to keep learning? Cause I mean, you're, you're looking at tech and makerspace and accessibility. These are things constantly changing. So not it changing, is. But, it, but in, improving. But. I will admit that I was, I've been better in the past about keeping up with technology and tech tools and resources and online stuff. This year, 2020 has been a beast for all of us, <laughs> um, but I try. Um, I have some uh, different blogs. I still like to follow like Larry Fralazzo and Free Tech for Teachers. And, but then also, I mean, Twitter. I just like yeah. to look at folks on Twitter and I, I make use of and wired and, you know, but then I also, um, if you haven't looked at, say, like Library 2.0, um, which is San Jose's free conference that they do four times a year, they've got very up-to-date uh, conferences that they do, completely free, breakout rooms, all kinds of stuff. That's more conferences and, and topics, and every, every one is, is, so I think the next one's coming up about libraries and, and the pandemic. Uh, very timely, very useful. Um, probably the largest audience I ever presented to was for a Library 2.0 conference. It was about oh, 1,500 God. people at a time. Yes. I was like, you got. Um, I, you know, so I do a lot online conferences, of course, online and face-to-face, -face, though haven't been to a face-to-face -face conference since AASL 2019. Mm -hmm. Hopefully 2021 AASL, I'll get to see oh. some people, but we shall see. Um, you know, and I, I keep an eye out to see if there's sessions or podcasts or tools or websites. You know, I just kind of continuously search. I keep my ears to the ground. There's a conference in Las Vegas about the latest tech innovations. I believe it's CES out of Las Vegas. And I keep a close eye on that every year because I like to see what are the latest technologies that are coming out. What are the latest education technologies, robotics, TVs, cars. I mean, it's more hands-on stuff, but you know, if they have a new tablet that has 
gel in the screen that pops up so you have a tactile keyboard I want to know about it yeah if if there's a new foldable tablet I want to know about it now it may never come to fruition uh, but there's a lot of really neat stuff out there Um, some folks in the library field or especially information science they get to go it's it's very much a you have to be kind of in the field of technology you have to be someone who's selling you have to be or press or I haven't gotten to go yet one of these days I'm going to get there but um but it's it's an interesting conference I'm not quite sure what happened to it I don't know if it's going to be happening this year or if it's going to be online anyway regardless Uh, so yeah I just I try to keep my eyes open of what's happening you know online social media without too much it can get to the point that I have to put a limit on how much I'm online because mm-hmm. I will, I will be there a lot yeah. if I'm not careful. I'm the same. Um, and just, I like to see what folks are, you know, working with what, what's popular, what folks like to use for, with their students, what they're using in schools, things along those lines. Very good. Um, that that's me. I mean, it, it's, it's very, um, all over the place. There's no great rhyme or reason to it. And then I just take a lot of notes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Heather, I am quite sure that you caught the attention of some of the listeners today. Uh, so if they want to keep learning from you and connect with you somehow, where will they find you online? I'm on Twitter. That's probably the most uh, common place you'll find me. And my Twitter handle is at acting in the lib. Uh, you can find me by my name as well. Uh, so A-C-T-I-N-G-I-N-T-H-E-L-I-B, acting in the lib, because I kind of combined. That's been my hang tag for a long time. Yeah. I do have a YouTube channel, which is uh, youtube.com uh, backslash tech 15. 15 is spelled out, uh, but you can also look at my name and tech 15 and you'll find me that way as well. Um, I don't have a blog. Sorry, guys. There's so many blogs out there. Really good ones too. I just, I, I've written for other blogs and it's, it's uh, hard enough to keep up as it is. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't have a podcast. I, I've interviewed for others and, and I've, I thoroughly enjoy listening to them, but I don't have my own. So yeah, no problem. that's, that's the main ways to keep in touch. And I, I'm always happy to chat about pretty much anything. So just feel free to get in touch. All right. Well, Heather, it's been great talking to you today. You're doing just such awesome things in our field. I really appreciate that. And thanks for the time of being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Greatly appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye-bye.